0: Welcome to the Pendulum Land podcast. Our podcast is designed for people interested in the right of way industry, eminent domain, or the Uniform Relocation Act, or anyone who just enjoys spirited discussion of popular culture. Today's podcast is sponsored by Pendulum Land Services, a full service right of way acquisition firm managed by industry experts who are dedicated to the integrity of the right of way process. Visit them at PendulumLand.com. With us today is our regular crew, Kristen Bennett from the great state of Texas. Greetings and salutations, Kristen.
1: Greetings and salutations, Dave.
0: And Carrie Lynn Hirsch from Pendulum Land Services. Greetings and salutations, Carrie Lynn.
1: Greetings and salutations, Dave.
0: Ross Green, eminent domain attorney, condemning authority attorney from Virginia. Greetings and salutations, Ross. Hi, Dave. And I'm Dave Arnold, your host and authority on the best music and movies released between 1975 and 1995. Let's get to it. Today, we have a special guest. We realize that our listeners are primarily in the right-of-way industry and we have invited onto our show a landowner lawyer that's correct
2: dun 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 (gasps)
0: yes yes we have allowed him to breach our walls so today we have jeremy (laughs) hopkins and jeremy is a an attorney that represents landowners exclusively in the raleigh durham area of north carolina he graduated from william and mary law school in 2002 And at that time he began exclusively representing property owners in eminent domain and property rights cases he's represented property owners from fortune 100 companies to individual businesses and homeowners in all types of eminent domain cases in both state and federal courts he is admitted to the supreme court of the united states and until relocating to raleigh he was chosen to serve as virginia's only representative of owners council of america and those of you who know that organization may know it as OCA. It's a group of attorneys, one from each state recognized nationally as leaders in practice of eminent domain. Now I want to tell you Ross and Jeremy and I have tried eminent domain cases against each other and we've litigated many many more and I don't mind telling you that some of my condemning authority clients they really are not very fond of Jeremy Hopkins and that's not because Jeremy's a bad guy, it's because he's such an ardent landowner attorney. Now Jeremy drinks the Kool-Aid. He drinks the landowner Kool-Aid for property rights, and he. but he can explain his philosophies clearly and articulately. And we in the right-of-way industry stand to learn a lot from Jeremy Hopkins. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Uh, are you wearing your signature black hat right now?
3: Dave, I am wearing the same bald head that I always have. Good morning. <laughs> I appreciate you having me.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. It's, it's interesting. To my knowledge, Jeremy, you... Don't and have never represented any condemning authorities, and as you know, Ross and I have never represented a landowner, and Kristen, in her relocation practice, I don't think has ever been retained as an expert by a landowner or a displacee. So we have a bright line between our group and you. How do
3: you feel about that? Well, I just think that's that's the way the the system sets it up, and uh, I, I think it's one of those things that it always works best if people focus on the issues and and. Try never to let it be a, a personal matter, but really focus on the issue at hand. And if everybody's working towards doing what's right and seeking justice, I think in the end, it works out best for everybody.
0: Yeah. And you know what's interesting, Jeremy? Um, we we have the line between the Landowners Bar and the Condemning Authorities Bar in Virginia. It's a pretty bright line. People rarely cross it. But in other parts of the country, people profess to do both sides. H- how is it down there in North Carolina?
3: There's a... Uh, a- pretty bright line. Uh, I'd say a, a, there's a bright line down here for the most part. There are some that, that do both sides. I think there are some people that, uh, that definitely cross the fence and do both sides. For me, I've always thought that would be very difficult, but, but some people do it and do a good job at it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so do, do, uh, do you wear the white hat or the black hat and what, what color is our hat from where you sit?
3: <laughs> well, you know, Dave, it, it's funny. I think at one time and, uh, I like to think I always ride the white horse or wear the white the white hat. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, there really are no good guys and bad guys. There's oh. a, a right and a wrong or a right answer. And I think that's what we always have to focus on is, is what's the right answer. And I've been disappointed at times because when you look at it that way, there have been many times when we're looking at legislative issues that my hope was we could draw some people even from the condemning authorities side to say, a particular bill or some legislation was fair. And I think people get caught up in what side of the fence are they on rather than looking at kind of right and wrong and and what's justice.
0: And you have detected some hostility on occasion from people who work for condemning authorities. Is that true?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure there are some rather nice adjectives that have been spoken about me, (laughs) but that's (laughs) the part. It's just part of it. That's what happens. And again, uh, I think sometimes we can get caught up too much on what side of the fence we're on rather than focused on fulfilling the constitutional requirement of just compensation or or limiting things to a public use. I think it's always best when we can focus on the issues.
0: Yeah, and Jeremy, I don't mind everybody knowing, um, as I said in the intro, you are a very likable guy and we have attended a number of the same conferences, particularly the ALICLE conference and the Virginia Statewide Eminent Domain Conference for a number of years and we always have a nice time catching up and chatting. But um, I think some people take this a little more personally than others.
3: No doubt about it. And it can, it can happen on both sides. I think that's partly why we have such a mess on our hands at times with with legislation. Very rare to, does everybody come together and work on something in a collaborative effort. And it, I think lots of times it costs us in the terms of, of legislation, confusing statutes, and Everybody pays in the end when that happens.
0: You know, from our position, uh, the the bills that are introduced each year, at least in, in our state, seem to always be very pro-landowner. And we kind of hold our breath every February for what's coming. And And it just seems to me there's always an onslaught for landowner issues to the legislature. Do you have a different perspective than that?
3: Very much so, yes. I think that starting with the railroads in the late 1800s, and really, since then, I mean, we, and we can see it, uh, the, pers- the powers of eminent domain expanding. They expanded immensely with the railroads. It led to the Berman decision in 1980, and then ultimately with Kilo, which caused uh, public uproar. And really, until kilo in most states, there was no voice at the legislature for the, the property owners. And so the property owners, I still view it as very much imbalanced, that the legislation is very skewed in favor of the condemning authorities and it's just a it's a result of property owners not having a voice at the legislature and for years the condemning authority had a very powerful and and cohesive lobbying authority and in some states there were even public officials that were paid to be down there lobbying and so the property owners were literally funding the demise of their own property rights and although we've made we being the property owners and have made some strides over the last several years i still think there's a long way to go to bring balance between the powers of eminent domain and the protections of eminent domain,
1: I agree with that uh, in a way. But I also think I, I specialize. This is Kristen again. I specialize in relocation, and I find that when there's new when there's new legislation, it usually is like we get, we're going to up the limits or we're going to we're going to err on the side of the displaced. Um, and really, for what I do, because everything that I do is a reimbursement, that only helps me. That doesn't make it harder for me to do my job. It actually makes it easier. But I think it's different when we're talking about. The acquisition of the land. But I, I find that it tends to, most of the new legislation coming out uh, for relocation tends to favor the displaced. But that's, again, that's a different situation than just acquiring the land for sure.
3: Well, and one of the things, and Kristen, I appreciate that perspective, but one of the things I would say to that in response is that relocation, the way it's been interpreted, and this goes back to why I think there's a need for legislation to protect owners, Virginia being the most recent decision that I know of out of the Virginia Supreme Court, And, of course, we have an opinion in North Carolina. I think the Fourth Circuit has, I think it's, and Dave, you may correct me, uh, New Sky or something like that, Sky Shopping Center. But anyway, the courts have all said that the relocation statutes are unenforceable. And so if you can't go to court to have a statute enforced and you're the owner and you don't have somebody like Kristen that's trying to do what's right or you have somebody that just misinterprets a statute, there's really nowhere to go because the statutes allow the condemning agency to be the judge and jury in their own case. And so I've often told people until that changes, the relocation statutes are really not worth the paper they're written on. I mean, they, matter of fact, for a long time in Virginia and even in the federal statute, it says we've created these rights, but then the statute goes on to say, but these, this statute really doesn't create any rights. And so I've always wondered why have a statute that purports to create rights and then in the same statute say, but it doesn't create any rights?
0: And Jeremy, I think, I think you're referring to the Clear Sky Car Wash case, which came out of the Fourth Circuit, which was Ross Green's in my case for this, on behalf of the city of Chesapeake that dealt with relocation issues. And the Virginia Supreme Court case uh, was Fernandez, which was also our case at the trial level. And I believe what the holding was in each of those is that there's no private right of action a relocation claim, meaning meaning the displacee has no right to sue under the Relocation Act.
3: Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think those were awful decisions. I, I, what I come back to is, and you did a good job. I mean, y'all did a good job representing your clients and obviously uh, prevailed. But I think the decisions are terrible because imagine if it were free speech. And if the government violated your free speech rights and you wanted to do something about it and the court said, well, we're so sorry, there's no cause of action for free speech you just have to expect accept whatever the agency dictates and so when it comes to relocation that's really what the owners are left with if you don't like the decision or even if it's a wrong decision the agency ultimately is judge and jury and you have no cause of action the courts won't won't intervene and so it leaves the owner with a a right but no remedy
0: but at least in terms of the relocation act the rights aren't created by the constitution the rights are created by federal law so can't the federal government mandate who can enforce the rights?
3: Yes. No. I, I agree there. I think that's why those those decisions, while I don't like them and I disagree with them, I don't think they are unconstitutional decisions because the statutes are a matter of legislative grace, unlike the constitutional requirement of just compensation, and that is what distinguishes those as far from a constitutional standpoint.
0: Right. So you disagree with the uh, relocation decisions? Have you have you um, been retained in the past that you can discuss on on the record? In in, on behalf of any displacees in relocation matters?
3: I have. Actually, one of the more fulfilling cases that I ever had was the Bergano case, and that was in federal court. Oh, boy. And, And frankly, the city's actions in that case, I thought then, and I still think were appalling what they did to Mr. Bergano. And while we weren't able to enforce his rights under the Relocation Act, Fortunately, we prevailed under due process, and I I think I believe we also prevailed under equal protection, but we were able to get justice in that case. But if if he had just been left with relocation, despite actions that even the federal court found to be egregious, Mr. Bergano would have been a, a man with no remedy and no court. And what they did to him was horrible. They told the man he had to leave. The city took his property. He had a dental practice. So he went out and found another building Uh, paid a tremendous amount of money to upfit that building so it would be appropriate for his dental practice. And then at the last hour, the city said, no, you don't have to leave, we'll let you stay. And not only did they do that, it was after he went through all that expense and was in the process of moving his practice, but the place the city was going, where they were going to let him stay was now going to be next to a social services office that the city ran, where they were bringing prisoners in jumpsuits and shackles into the the next door office. So he was gonna have to ask mothers and fathers and children to come to his dental practice and basically enter a a door that was just feet away from where the city was gonna bring, bringing prisoners in jumpsuits and shackles. And the city felt like not only was that a suitable location, but that they could basically do the bait and switch with impunity. It, It was just a great example of why relocation should be enforceable because when there is a bad actor or a bad decision, regardless of the motives behind it, if you leave a person with no remedy, then the rights are not worth the paper they're written on.
1: That's really, that whole case is fascinating to me and I don't know as much about it as the rest of you for sure. But I will say, I feel like sometimes we bring issues into relocation that may not be relocation issues. Like the whole issue of there being a a business next door that's unattractive to him. I don't know how that's really relevant to the relocation at all.
3: Oh, I I can tell you how it's relevant because the statute says that if you move as a result of the acquisition, and in this case, not only was he moving because of the property that was acquired, but as part of the acquisition, the city put these people in next door to him. He would never locate a dental practice next to a place where they're bringing prisoners in jumpsuits and shackles. So because of the acquisition and what the city did with the property it took, it rendered his property unsuitable for a dental practice. So it made it reasonable for him to claim that he was a displacee, that he was moving as a direct result of the acquisition. And so that was the relevance. Not only did he lose parking and access and all those, but as a result of the acquisition, he was now asking going to have to ask mothers and fathers to bring their children to a dental practice where they're shuffling prisoners in shackles and jumpsuits in and out right next door. I mean literally the same building just feet away from the door.
1: Well and Jeremy when you talk about parking and access I get that but you know is that and just just playing devil's advocate is that any different than if that was a partial take and now his building is closer to a highway? Maybe people don't want to get out of their cars and go to a dental practice next to a highway. That doesn't necessarily displace him if it's not a safety issue.
3: I think if it renders it unsuitable for that, I think it could be. I think even in your scenario, if you could show through market evidence that being closer to a highway that nobody would run a dental practice there, nobody has, and that, that you couldn't run one there. I think that is proof of the reasonableness uh, of the claim of the display C.
2: But I don't the think weather- that's the comparable – like that's a comparable example. All credit to Kristen, Jeremy. Like what you're talking about is essentially you're in a multi-bay – building and the landlord puts a tenant you don't like next to you. That doesn't mean you have a claim. That's not a property rights claim anywhere else in the world. Why is it a claim for the government? Like you rent a bay. Okay, you rent a space in a building. You don't like the other tenant. That's not an issue. That's not a problem you <laughs> you don't gain in leasing a space in a multi-use property the right to determine the quality of all of the other tenants in the property. But for some reason, when it's the government, landowner attorneys seem to think that that's a thing, that somehow the entire rest of the you know history of the English common law, which says basically your rights to property end at the boundaries of your property, except for other easements and perhaps for the benefit of that property over another, you all seem to think that somehow your property entitles you to govern the use of other people's property wherever it is, as long as it's the government that you want to claim an effect on. And I don't see how that's even vaguely legal or ever has been the law.
3: Ross, I disagree with that. I, I disagree with that uh, perspective on how we view it, because number one, Shocking. I've always said that the. <laughs> I'm
0: shocked that you disagree.
3: <laughs> I, I've always said that the government should be in the same shoes as a private developer. If he or she were taking the property, no more, no less. And And I'll get to that on valuation here later. I'm sure if we go that route. But I don't think it's a matter of not liking who your neighbor is. I think it's a matter of whether it renders renders your tenancy or your property unsuitable. And I think that's really what it amounts to. For example, I don't think if if a landlord had a piece of property and take a temporary construction easement, for example, they wanted to renovate their building and they were doing they went in and started renovating the building and there was vibration and dust and debris. I think a private tenant would have a cause of action to leave. And I think you could make that argument too. If they put a use that was mutually inconsistent and it rendered that my part of the building unsuitable for its use, I think he would have a, a cause of action. It would all depend on how the contract's drafted, I'm sure, but we've, we've seen plenty of situations where that was the case. And in Mr. Bergano's situation, he would have had the opportunity to exit the property if they rendered his unit unsuitable for his use. And that's exactly what happens. So it's not a matter of not liking it. You may not like something, and it may still be suitable for your use. But when it renders that property unsuitable for its use, I think that's the difference. That's when it becomes reasonable for somebody to relocate as a a result of the acquisition.
0: Ross,
2: what do you think about that? I can't say that I agree. I mean, this is all angels dancing on the head of a pin here. It's unsuitable for his use because apparently the dentist was fancy enough that he feels like he's above basically the justice system and people in the custody of sheriffs are somehow a
0: threat to them. Okay. So go go ahead, Jeremy. Go go ahead. I, I, I want to give you a chance to respond to that.
3: Ross, I'd go out and ask how many mothers want to bring their children into a dental office where they're bringing prisoners in in jumpsuits and shackles because we saw the market reaction. There, there were people that literally said they wouldn't come back. We had the evidence.
0: So you, you know what this tells me is it tells me that there is a bright line between us and each of us, and I, the us I'm, I'm using very generally, not as individuals, um, at times views the other as a villain. It's very clear through your comments that you sometimes view the condemning authority as a villain. And it's very clear through Ross's comments that he's very suspicious of the motives of some of the landowners, displacees and landowners bar. So I think this is a good time to discuss movie heroes and villains. What do you think?
1: Yes. And Jeremy, <laughs> if you're willing, we, we play a little game here on the pendulum podcast called over under push. Are you in? I'm in. You want to start with heroes or do you want to start with villains?
3: Uh, either way it's fine with me. You, you, you choose, and I'm ready.
1: All right, let's start with the villains. So the way you play over-under push is I'm going to give you three names of villains, and for each one, you can think about it. You need to tell me if that villain is overrated, underrated, or if it's a push. Okay, here, here are your villains. Are you ready? Number one, I'm ready. Hannibal Lecter. Number two, Lex Luthor. And number three, Thanos. Did I say that right, Ross? I'm not a big superhero person. Is it Thanos?
2: Say it, Carolyn.
1: Thanos. Thanos? Thanos. Thanos. Okay, again, not a superhero girl. So so you've got Hannibal Lecter, Lex Luthor, and Thanos. Ugh. All right, what say you, Jeremy?
3: With regard to which one?
1: Let's go Hannibal Lecter first.
3: Underrated. I, uh, huge villain. Huge villain.
1: Correct. One of the best. Okay, what about Lex Luthor? Uh,
3: overrated. Overrated
1: think I agree with you on that one. Okay. And what about the one I can't pronounce? Thanos. Say it, Carrie Lynn. Thanos. What Jeremy, is Thanos? Please tell me you know who Thanos is.
3: I was just going to say, because I've never heard of this person. Yes! I'm what is, whoa. like, none Good. of you
2: people watched any of Infinity War. What is Infinity War? I don't
1: know what that is. Oh, is that, like, comic? The Avengers. Under, you, <laughs> did, you didn't
2: watch Black Panther. You didn't watch The Avengers. No. Do you still play with your Stretch Armstrong and your your Rock'em Sock'em <laughs> Robots? What's and going on
3: here? As a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> if, it's, if it's not Sheriff Callie or Mickey Mouse or... Uh, Paw Patrol, I probably haven't watched it
1: in a while. Very very well. And you know what, dear listeners, if you don't know this, Jeremy is the father of seven children, including five girls. So I'm sure the Paw Patrol is a heavy hitter at your house.
3: Most definitely.
1: Who's the villain in Paw Patrol?
3: Oh, the guy's name is uh, Mayor Goodway.
1: Okay, Mayor Goodway, over under push. What do you think?
3: Uh, un, uh, over, underrated for him for sure okay he, he caused he has caused many bad dreams
2: why am i surprised <laughs> that the mayor is the villain in Germany?
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay mm. all right we're, we're we're training them up the right way ross no kidding no kidding
1: okay let's go to our heroes over under push and here are your heroes number one batman number two dirty harry and number three, Aaron Brockovich. So what do you think? Let's go with Batman first.
3: Overrated.
1: I agree. Okay. Anybody going anybody gonna to take his side, my side? <laughs>
3: hey,
0: did do you remember when Michael Keaton played Batman?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Did, was that, did you like that? Like it was so controversial when it came out.
1: I think those are the only Batman, I think I saw one with Christian Bale and I did see, I liked Michael, I like Michael Keaton. Well, Christian though. Bale
2: is by far the best. And the worst one is definitely nipples on the bat suit. What?
1: Yeah, don't need that.
2: Uh, what Val Kilmer?
1: Oh. he
2: played Batman. Uh uh-huh. huh. He, he's not in good shape these yeah, days. Yeah, and you guys shouldn't
1: ask me about Batman or any superhero movies because I just am
3: not into it.
2: Michael Keaton's yeah. actually pretty good Batman. He was it's very the good. the rest of the movie that fails him, not him failing the movie. <laughs> and
3: and and Kim Basinger from Mableton, Mableton, Georgia was in it with him.
2: Yes. From oh Grazzleton. yeah, no,
3: she's from Braselton, Georgia. That's right.
2: God, that was a messed up take on Catwoman.
0: And Prince. <laughs> Prince, the symbol or the singer, uh, did the soundtrack for that Batman. Yes, and he did yes. the Bat Dance.
2: Bat Dance. <laughs> right.
1: Wow. Okay, so that was our first uh, hero for Over Under Push. Let's go with Dirty Harry. What do you think? Uh,
3: underrated.
1: Underrated. All right. Yes,
0: yes, I totally. I love Dirty Harry. All
1: love right. Him. What about Aaron Brockovich, played by the lovely Julia Roberts?
3: Oh, you gotta love that. Definitely underrated. The the underdog.
1: Totally agree with you on that one. I love Erin Brockovich.
0: Well, that's kind of a setup. Of course you love Erin Brockovich. And, like, who's going to say that Erin Brockovich is overrated? She stood up for the
3: the little man.
1: She didn't like people getting cancer.
3: Yeah. I put put her right there with Rudy as one of the greatest uh, underdogs of all time.
1: Oh, we should have put Rudy. Rudy's a hero. Okay, good one. Thank you for participating in Over Under Push. I think... I think you passed. Did he get them all right?
0: Yes. And yeah. here comes, then, so says the audience.
1: Woohoo! <laughs> you know, we, we do get to judge. You know, when you say your opinion on these things, we do get to tell you whether or not you're right. And in this case, you are correct. <laughs>
2: Which kind of takes away most of the comedic value because the best part's to be like, no, you're wrong. And this, there was none of that. Right
3: in fairness, I've been told so many times by Dave and Ross that I'm wrong, that I'm just used to it. I'm immune.
1: Well, I'm telling you, Jeremy, you are right. You were right on with over under push.
0: You know, it got to be that Jeremy litigated so many cases with us that we just like developed our own little wah-wah sign language and where we wouldn't even verbalize. It would be like, Jeremy, or Jeremy would ask us for something and we'd just go, <laughs> and we wouldn't even answer him back. <laughs> so... um our first episode of the Pendulum Land podcast <laughs> was called Eminent Domain, Good Versus Evil. And as you can imagine, we came down on probably the exact opposite side that you would have, but we debated it openly, at least by our standards. And so I wanted to get your take. Um, you make your living because of the existence of eminent domain, as do we. So I know that you think that, that the system has been abused or the concept has been of practice has been abused, but... What what are your feelings about the propriety or the morality of eminent domain in the United States?
3: You know, Dave, I, I'm a big believer in our constitutional system and what our framers put in place. And they obviously put a constitutional system in place that contemplated eminent domain. And of course, they had it in the English common law. And so I've, I've never viewed eminent domain when carried out properly as evil. I, I think it's it's one of those Uh, necessary but unpopular powers of government. And that's why I think it's so important that we make sure to get our laws right and to make sure there's a balance between powers and protections, because it is one of the most invasive powers that the government has. And uh, and it's one of the few areas of law where uh, the property owner is truly innocent. The property owner has done nothing but own land that somebody else wants. And that's why you asked me earlier, do I think I wear the white hat? In that regard, I would tell you, we're always wearing the white hat because when I go to court with a property owner, I'm going to court with somebody that truly has done nothing wrong. They're not even alleged to have done anything wrong other than own property that somebody else wants. Now, with that said, does that mean the condemning authority is evil or that the power of eminent domain is bad? No, but I think that just stresses the importance of trying to get our laws right so that owners are fairly compensated. And going back to the point I made earlier, I think an owner should be in the same position that he or she would be in if instead of the government coming and knocking on the door, if it were a developer and the developer were building a private project and said, I want to take some of your land, I think the property should be valued in an eminent domain case, just like it would if it were a developer. And unfortunately, we're not there yet. And so condemning authorities, because of the laws, they get a condemnation discount. It's just a fact. And I I don't think there's any way to argue when you have... Uh, certain things that are not considered in an eminent domain appraisal that would be considered in an ordinary voluntary uh, transaction, that owners are not being treated the same way when it's the government taking their land by force than they would if it were a developer taking it through a voluntary transaction.
2: And here's the part where after they haven't done anything wrong, they hire a crooked appraiser to lie about the value of the property and say Mm -hmm. a bunch of things that never would even exist or be contemplated in a private transaction. Like somehow it's a 5% reduction to the several hundred acres because of a loss of privacy for a tiny strip, you know, a few miles away from the other end of the property. So let's devalue the entire property for it. Yeah, sure, Jeremy, there's a discount. Oh,
1: shots fired.
3: oh Well, I think those are two separate issues, Ross. What, you, what it sounds like you're talking about is a bad appraisal, and I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about, for example, and that Utah just passed a bill to correct this. I'm not sure if Virginia did or not, but uh, Utah just passed a bill to address this very issue. I would hope if it were your property or your parents' property, and certainly I would hope if it were mine or my parents' or siblings'. And a developer came and knocked on the door and said, hey, listen, I need to take part of your property. I'm putting a sewage plant for my new development next door. It's The sewage plant itself, the pond, is going to be about five feet off your property. But I'm going to need to build an access road because I need the access road to get to it. And I'm going to have to put this sewage plant in. And you're going to look at that now at your front door. If I'm the seller, I'm certainly going to consider what's being done. And that would be considered in a voluntary transaction. I've had cases where the condemning authority has said, "Oh, look, even though we need part of your property to put this sewage plant in, you're not allowed to consider the fact that your house is now going to sit next to a sewage plant. It's going to face the sewage plant." And my position is, it, it should be no different than a private transaction. If that developer could build his sewage plant or her sewage plant without taking any of my property, that's just part of property ownership. I have to deal with it unless it rises to the level of a nuisance. But if that developer needs a piece of my property, then I would be able to consider what he or she's going to do, including the sewage plant. I think it's highly unfair that owners have to part with their property at a discount that is a price reduced from what they would get in a voluntary transaction. And I'm not talking about holdout costs. I've never been a proponent of holdout costs. Fair is fair, but if it's something that would be considered and could be considered in a voluntary transaction, there's no reason it should be excluded when your property is taken by force.
0: Are you essentially saying are you addressing project influence right now? Negative project when, when, influence.
3: I am when when part of the property is taken because it's necessary for the public use. Yes, well,
1: Jeremy. In that case, though, isn't it if if it makes the the property less attractive or it's it's not uh, able to be used in the same fashion? Wouldn't that be paid under like value of the remainder in the after as damages? Wouldn't that be compensable there? Doesn't not that where we cover that?
3: If you had a good judge, yes, but I've had condemning authorities argue and I've seen cases where the judges, frankly, I I feel have gotten it wrong. They say, look, even though they're building the access road across your property, if the sewage pond, if no part of the actual pond itself touches your property, you don't get to consider that. And that is completely contrary to what would happen in a voluntary transaction.
0: But you're not talking about essentially putting a price tag on property that's not for sale. What you're not advocating is says is a, is a scenario where the government says, hey, Dave, I need to condemn your property to put a highway through it, and I say it's not for sale. And you know, Jeremy, almost everybody has a price. Sure. And so a piece of property, if my house is worth $100,000, what you're not saying is it will take a million dollars to get Dave Arnold to voluntarily agree to part ways with his property, which is really valued at a hundred thousand. Therefore the government has to pay the million dollars. You're not, you're not taking that position. Are you
3: not at all? That's what I refer to as the holdout value, right? No. And that's, that's not what would happen in a, in a bond. If you had a voluntary transaction, you take that scenario and the developer buys the property and everybody considers what impact the project would have on the property. That's what I'm talking about. If you need some of my property to build your project, then if I'm selling it to a developer, I'm certainly going to contemplate the project. So is the developer. It's not I'm getting a premium just because I don't want to sell. It's just simply what what impact does this have on the value of my property?
1: And, Jeremy, if you're talking about the landowner having a say in that, like it's voluntary, who gets to make the final call as to what the damages are? If it's not handled through the appraisal process, who gets to make the call as to what that costs to be next door to a sewage plant?
3: Well, in the developer scenario, the developer does, because let's say there are two properties and the developer can buy either one. And again, I'm not talking about holdout value and let's say the sellers are willing to sell the developer can buy either of those properties. If, if there are two different properties that he or she could use for the road to get to the sewage plant, for example, the, the market's going to set the price because the developer is going to have to say, these owners are going to consider what I'm doing. Their, their property now goes from facing a buffer area, green space to facing a sewage pond. Certainly they're going to contemplate that in the sales price. And But again, it's not, I get a premium because I don't want to sell. It's, I get to consider what you're doing. There's no owner, no reasonable owner in their right mind. If a developer came in and said, I want to put a sewage pond next to you and I need part of your property to do it. None of them would say, okay, I'll act like you're not going to do that. So but, I'll sell it to you at some hypothetical value.
0: But Jeremy, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And there have been projects that I've been involved with for the condemning authority. and I, Frankly, your firm was involved with where we're coming through on a rural road that is lined with agricultural properties on three and four acres and we we take some of that property but we're also widening the road we're putting in curbing and guttering and we're bringing water and sewer lines to them and the jury's not allowed to consider the fact
3: that the properties are actually more valuable in the after. And, And Dave I think that's a great example from your perspective And this is why I wish the condemning authorities would get on board with with this whole idea of let's really replicate the market. What you're really saying is, in that case, we're not valuing the property the way the market would. And if we're going to adopt market value as as the standard, why should we not be valuing the property the way the market would? In that case, if you can show it's more valuable, then I still think you should have to pay for what you take. I I think it's highly unfair to have a situation where an owner wouldn't at least be compensated for what's taken. But if you can show the remainder is actually enhanced and it's evidence the market would consider I think the jury should consider what what buyers and sellers would consider and then under your scenario if you can show that why shouldn't the jury be able to hear it
0: well uh, because of the project influence rule is the is the short answer to your question
3: right and, and my whole my whole thing getting back to if we all focus on justice and fairness I think I would hope there are times where everybody would say you know what Let's do this the right way. Let's let's get rid of some of these crazy rules that lawyers have created that really just muck things up in the courtroom. It just, it muddies the waters. And let's just say we're going to do an ordinary appraisal. And if this, these are things buyers and sellers would consider, it should be considered here. And it, just because it's a forced sale shouldn't change that.
0: Okay, I, I have just kind of a random question that's completely off topic. What do you think of Billy Squire?
3: Oh, boy. Are you still there? He hung up.
1: That's what happens when you talk about Billy Squire.
2: <laughs> Nobody cares but you.
3: What okay. do you think of Billy Squire? Well, you, this is really going to disappoint you, but I know about as much about him as I do that superhero.
1: That a boy. God, hey, oh, you're right. You, you oh. are right again. You are right again. Listen, Jeremy, I'm going to tell you something about uh, one of your hosts on this podcast, Dave Arnold. He's a little bit obsessed with Billy Squire, um, who apparently had like one or two half hits like in the early 80s or something.
3: Oh um, the singer Billy Squire. Yes. yes.
1: No, he's not the a stroke. landowner attorney or a, a condemning authority attorney. No, he's a he's apparently some sort of a performing artist from
3: alleged <laughs> yesteryear. Yes. I'm trying to remember, Dave, uh now that you say the singer I, cause I was gonna ask you if he, is he on Paw Patrol, but uh, <laughs> no.
1: He he might what? be. He's probably what? well, he's probably looking for work. He might audition for Paw Patrol. I mean,
2: I heard they canceled the cop dog on Paw Patrol, so they gotta put somebody in.
3: <laughs> yeah, oh. Chase Chase became unpopular.
1: Oh, Chase.
3: <laughs> so what? What Billy Squire? I'm trying to remember what he sang, Dave. But I do remember Billy Squire from the
1: '80s. Well,
0: he str he sang "The Stroke." He sang "My Kinda Lover." Uh, yeah, in, in the dark, lonely as the night.
1: If you, Jeremy, if you go back to some some of our previous podcasts, there are a couple times that I think Dave breaks out a little Billy Squire and sings sings for us. It's it's not my favorite, but I will say. Um, <laughs> Dave's mission for this podcast, besides to have wonderful spirited debates about eminent domain, his goal is to get Billy Squire to appear on our podcast. So we'll keep you updated
3: on that. That, that is great. Well, when you first asked Billy Squire, I was drawing a blank. I don't know if you could hear me. I was telling you, I, I need a little more information.
0: <laughs> you were I could hear you firing up the Googles out there.
3: <laughs> so Billy Squire.
0: Billy Squire. And he doesn't spell it correctly, as Kristen says. Correct. Right. So uh, I want to talk about uh, but before we have to wrap up, I want to talk about a subject that is um, a very sensitive subject to my clients, and that is the role of the media in eminent domain and eminent domain cases. And what we see from our perspective, and I'm sure you have some um, commentary on this, is that in some of the more controversial cases, suddenly the media shows up. And of course, we don't call them, and I'm just curious... What Do you think the the media has a role, you know, the 6 o'clock news, the newspaper, do they have a role in this process?
3: You know, when you were talking about the big picture of eminent domain, I I think they absolutely do. Because I think for years, landowners, they get picked off one at a time. And you've had a a very strong condemning authority lobby. And so, again, you've had a situation where landowners are being forced to fund the demise of their own property rights, literally, with their local real estate taxes and, and others. And they're like a voice crying out in the wilderness. There's no voice for them at the legislature. There's no lobbying outfit. And a lot of this stuff was just flying under the radar. And so I I do. I think anytime there's injustice that it does need light and it does need brought to public attention. And so from the big perspective, I think it's very helpful. Uh, And frankly, I wish more of these issues, I wish the public knew about it. And some of the things that seem so simple and so second nature to us, That when you tell the general public for the first time, or you you just pull John or Jane Doe off the the side of the street and you tell them, did you know the government could, and in Virginia for years, this was the case, the government can take your property and they don't even have to send you notice that they've taken it. They could just go to the courthouse, file a certificate, and until the law was changed four or five years ago, whatever it was, they didn't have to tell you. And, And there were times I would get calls where people would say, my sign just got bulldozed at my business. My fence just got taken down.
0: Well, now Jeremy, um, th- that didn't occur absent a bona fide offer. So they had the landowner had received notice that we were coming, and they had received a bona fide offer, and they had been given an opportunity to counter offer. And so y- you're making it sound like they just it just came out of the blue and they never saw it coming.
3: We in most cases, in most cases, yes, there were times it came out of the blue. And I don't think I ever had one of those dealing with your firm. But there were times it came out of the blue for sure, especially when they got the the wrong owner or there were multiple owners and they contacted one and maybe the owners didn't talk. But then in addition to that, there are plenty of times where an offer would be made and the project would be suspended or delayed. We're dealing with a lot of that right now in 2020. And so it wasn't as if the taking was imminent. Lots of times there would be a bona fide offer and that the acquisition company, many times it was a private company would say. We're not sure when this will happen, or then it would get delayed, and it was allegedly 12 to 18 months out, and then all of a sudden the sign's getting bulldozed. So, yes, I, I agree with you, at least with an offer. You know at some point it's going to happen, but it sure would not be nice to know when. And if you're told, for example, a project's delayed for 12 to 18 months, and you show up at work six weeks later and your sign's getting bulldozed, it's pretty shocking, and there's no chance to try to take measures to to minimize that damage at that point.
0: And, you know, you, you you brought something up that I'm very sensitive to, and we've discussed on this podcast, is you have a very, very different perspective on, on real estate taxes. And your perspective is that the landowner is funding their own demise. Our perspective is that the taxpayer is paying for exorbitant and extraordinary demands of landowners, and we're we are lining the pockets of wealthy landowner lawyers. The taxpayer is. Because all these settlements are paid by you and me.
3: Well, at the end of the day, the, the individual owner being forced to surrender his or her property is also a taxpayer. And that's the one that I've always felt has been left out of the equation. Because the condemning authorities lobby has been down there for years, lobbying on behalf of all the taxpayers but the one individual being forced to surrender his or her property.
0: Okay, we've talked about the media. And sometimes when we're in the heat of battle, as you say, um, over a disagreement over just compensation, suddenly we find out that an elected official, someone from the legislature or the local city council is now getting involved. How do they get involved in these things?
3: Well, you know, sometimes the elected officials uh, are contacted by the owners. Sometimes they may see it. through legislation or in the media, I and mean, there's a multitude of ways they can find out, but I keep going back to, that's a good thing. I think we want our elected officials to know what's going on. That's, for example, the when Utah got its bill corrected recently, or its its laws corrected. Public officials found out there were things going on in their jurisdiction, and they took action to correct it. And I think, for example, in Virginia, if most public officials knew that you didn't have to give notice to, a property owner wasn't entitled to notice before their property was taken and before their signs and fences were being bulldozed, I think most of them would have said, let's get that corrected. I think if most public officials understood that uh, a condemnation appraisal in some instances, some judges have ruled, cannot consider things buyers and sellers would consider. I think most reasonable people would say, let's get that corrected. So I think it's a good thing that public officials know. And I think anybody that feels like they're doing what's right, they would not be concerned. With, with public officials knowing what, what's going on.
1: Jeremy, I'm with you on that in theory. However, what I find is that when a public official is involved in something that, that I'm working on, again, I'm mainly focused on relocation, um, it's more of a threat. It's more of an empty threat. And then it's somebody calling me saying, I heard you're making these people move, and you're not going to make them whole. Which spoiler alert, we're not required to make them whole. I don't even have a vehicle to do that with relocation. Um, but if it were a matter of like somebody contacting their senator or some local, some local figure that wanted to understand the process, I'm all for it. I would love to explain it to them. But relocation is complicated. I deal with a lot of attorneys that have no clue about the, the Uniform Act or about the relocation benefits, and a lot of times they just go, whatever. You, you handle the relocation part. But a local official certainly in most cases, is not really aware of the relocation benefits. And so, in my experience, usually when there's a public official involved in that respect, it's just a threat, and it's just like them trying to light a fire and get things done faster or get more money when sometimes it's not there, it's not available.
3: Sure, yeah, and I I don't think individual public officials should be trying to influence the outcome of, of an individual case, but what you just referenced, as far as the public official learning from you as an expert that the laws don't make owners whole. Mm -hmm. I think they need to know that because I think at the end of the day, we should be making owners whole. And and I'm not talking again about any bonus value or holdout value. I'm talking about just making them whole. And so I think it's a good thing for light to be shed on some of these areas where for years, owners aren't made whole. And, And I'll go a step further. I mean, Dave, you talk about lining the pockets of the attorneys. At the end of the day, it's not about the attorneys. It's about that property owner, and I've felt very strongly for years, and I haven't really advocated it a whole lot. of. I haven't been aggressive in advocating it because it seems, uh, frankly, it seems like it would be selfish motives coming from an attorney, but I put myself in the shoes of a landowner, and I think, okay, if I were offered 85% the value of my home and the government wanted my home, and I could show that it was really worth 15% more, but I had to pay a lawyer to prove that, and I and if I go prove that the government's offer was low, and I ultimately recover the real market value of my property in court, but yet I have to sacrifice a portion of that to to lawyers' fees and expenses and appraisers. I haven't been made whole, and and these are areas where I'm talking about. We really need to, I think, do a better job of trying to make sure that that owners are made whole.
0: You know, I am listening to this entire discussion with fascination. It's it's like talking to someone from a different planet, and as I said in the intro to this, a lot of people in the right-of-way industry uh, stand to learn a lot from listening to what you have to say, whether they agree with it or not. I think it's beneficial to hear your perspective. I think you give your perspective very well for the interests of the landowner, and frankly, we need to do more of that, and we need to hear more of that. So... Um, Jeremy. Well,
3: well, well, Dave, if you say I'm from another planet, at least my wife would agree with you. <laughs>
0: okay. So one one thing we're gonna we're before we wrap up and we're about to wrap up, uh, we need to ask you one more question. We're gonna kind of go around and anybody anybody who wants to can join in. One more question for everybody, mind you, Jeremy. We are going to record your answers and probably use them against you down the line. And that is. <laughs>
3: That doesn't surprise me, Dave.
0: (laughs) That's right. Win at all costs, that's what we're about. That is, Jeremy, guilty pleasures. Do you have any? And I will tell you, let me start. I have a couple of guilty pleasures. Mine are generally are associated with music, and they are the band Air Supply, Kelly Clarkson, and the singer Rob Thomas, not necessarily with Matchbox 20, but as a solo artist. Those are kind of my guilty pleasures.
3: Well, let me chime in there, Dave, because I've had more than one owner say that you're all out of love.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but are they so lost without me? Are they? <laughs> Kristen, what do you think?
1: Oh, I have my guilty. Pl- I really like just crappy pop music. I really do. Like, give me some Justin Bieber. And I, yeah, I like I, I really like just really mainstream pop music. I really do. Sorry, not sorry.
0: Yeah, you're, you're sorrier than you think. How about you, Carrie Lynn?
1: Justin Bieber has a song called Sorry, just if you wanted to know. It's fabulous. Yeah, I, I don't
0: want to know, and I don't care. Carrie Lynn.
1: I, I like um, Korean soap operas. What? 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 I do. They're, what? They're, I don't know. My daughter got me into them a couple years ago, and they're so They're so. Corny, but they're like addictive, and you have to keep watching to find out, even though you know exactly what's going to happen every time. This Uh, is fabulous,
0: Jeremy. Does that raise any questions from you (laughs) for us?
3: Well, I was wondering is that the fellow that I didn't know earlier, the uh, superhero, is he in that show? (laughs) And and does Billy Squire sing sing the theme song?
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, buddy. Before we wrap up, it's your turn. Got any guilty pleasures?
3: You know, I'll, I'll just start off with music. I'm definitely a, a country music fan. I like the old stuff better, but uh, rarely do I get to listen. My wife is a big praise and worship person. She's always telling me we're gonna keep that on for the kids. But when I get my chance, I have my country music on and my barbecue pit going. My my biggest guilty pleasure is old school barbecue with real wood and the logs. Texas style is my favorite. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, buddy. If you're gonna come with eminent domain take my home, don't take my barbecue pit. My <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, mine's mobile, so it goes with me. But yeah, uh, it's—I it, would tell them in North Carolina, it's personal property; they can't take it. Well,
0: I promise yeah. to never come take your uh, barbecue pit. And on that note, we're gonna wrap up. So everybody, thank you for joining us for the Pendulum Land podcast, brought to you by Pendulum Land Services, LLC, a full services right-of-way acquisition company dedicated to the integrity of the right-of-way industry. Visit them at PendulumLand.com or on Twitter at PendulumLand. Our guest, Jeremy Hopkins. If you're in North Carolina and you're in need of an excellent landowner attorney, contact him at the law firm of Cranville, Sumner, and Hartzog. The broadcast was produced by Right-of-Way Consults, LLC. You can reach out to your resident experts on Twitter at Kristen, at Right-of-Way Ross, at Right-of-Way Dave. We'll see you next time.
1: Thanos, 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 Thanos.